Welcome to ENT Nuggets of Knowledge, the podcast that helps you study for your otolaryngology in-service or board exams with easy, digestible lectures that you can listen to while you live your life. I am your host, Dr. Danny Anders, and this is Laryngeal Clefts. These are fairly rare entities, but they can have great clinical significance. The incidence of laryngotracheal clefts is about 1 in 10 to 20,000, and the literature describes identifying a cleft in up to 7.6% of patients undergoing direct laryngoscopy for respiratory symptoms. There is a slight male predominance, and although there is no known genetic cause, they can be associated with a few syndromes. Opitz Frias, also known as Opitz G BBB, and Pallister Hall, as well as the Vactorol Association. We will talk more about these a little later. First, let's discuss the pertinent embryology. Recall from the laryngeal anatomy lecture that the glottis and subglottis are derived from the tracheobronchial primordium of the sixth branchial arch. During weeks five to seven of gestation, the complete cricoid ring forms from two lateral centers and the longitudinal tracheoesophageal folds fuse in the midline to separate the airway from the esophagus. A rest of these processes along the way leads to various degrees of clefting. The most commonly used classification system to describe these degrees of clefting is the Benjamin Inglis classification. Type 1 describes incomplete formation of the interarytenoid muscle, producing a cleft that can extend to the true vocal folds. This is sometimes referred to as a deep interarytenoid groove. Type 2 clefts extend into the superior aspect of the posterior cricoid lamina. Type 3 clefts extend through the cricoid and into the cervical trachea, but do not pass the sternal notch. And type 4 clefts extend into the thoracic trachea. You may also read about a modification to this classification scheme that was posed by Sandu and Monnier. This splits types 3 and 4 into A and B. Type 3A is clefting through the cricoid but no further, while type 3B extends into the cervical trachea. Type 4A describes clefting of the thoracic trachea anywhere from the sternal notch down to the carina, and type 4B describes extension beyond the carina into one of the main stem bronchi. These classifications are important for the treatment options and prognosis, which we will get into in a minute. These patients will come to your attention in several ways. The more severe clefts will make themselves evident earlier in life with respiratory distress. The less severe clefts most commonly present with coughing, choking, or wheezing, especially with the ingestion of liquids. They may also have strider, cyanosis, or recurrent pneumonias. Since this is a rare entity, you will want to keep your differential broad and consider other aerodigestive causes for these symptoms, like laryngomalacia, true vocal fold immobility, GERD, reactive airway disease, neurogenic swallow dysfunction, esophageal stricture, eosinophilic esophagitis, or tracheoesophageal fistula. Initial workup should involve flexible laryngoscopy and aspiration evaluation with a modified barium swallow or functional endoscopic evaluation of swallow. Ultimately, definitive diagnosis of a cleft requires direct laryngoscopy with palpation of the interarytenoid area. Bronchoscopy should also be performed to look for the extent of the cleft evidence of chronic aspirations such as edema, erythema, or blunting of tracheal rings, and for the presence of other anomalies such as a TE fistula or tracheobronchial malacia. Tracheobronchial malacia is found in up to one-third of cleft patients, and its presence may influence treatment, which we will get to soon. 
It was also found to be associated with TE fistula in 12 to 56% of patients, so make sure you are looking for these on your bronchoscopy. Identification of additional midline anomalies should prompt a syndromic workup. The syndromes associated with laryngeal clefting briefly mentioned earlier are Opitz-Frias syndrome, Pallister-Hall syndrome, and the Vactoral Association. Opitz-Frias syndrome is also known as Opitz-G-BBB syndrome. Opitz was the doctor who first described the syndrome, and G-BBB are the first letters of the last names of the first patients diagnosed. There are two forms, an X-linked form caused by MID1 mutation and an autosomal dominant form caused by a 22Q11 gene mutation. A quick side note here. This mutation is distinct from a 22Q11 deletion, which is associated with velocardiofacial syndrome or DeGeorge syndrome and laryngeal webs, a topic for another day. These mutations affect midline structures causing hypertelarism and hypospadias in addition to laryngotracheal esophageal defects. Pallister-Hall syndrome is caused by GLI-3 gene mutations, resulting in limb abnormalities like polydactyly and syndactyly, hypothalamic hamartomas, bifid epiglottis, laryngeal clefting, kidney abnormalities, and imperforate anus. The Vactoril Association is not really a syndrome because there is no known cause to explain the grouped incidence of the following anomalies, vertebral defects, anal atresia, cardiac defects, tracheoesophageal fistula, renal abnormalities, and limb abnormalities. Even outside of a syndrome or association diagnosis, treating patients with clefts should involve a multidisciplinary approach to include speech therapy, pulmonology, gastroenterology, and potentially neurology. Suspicion for a contributing neurologic dysfunction and thus the utility of a neurology consult should be raised if the degree of aspiration is beyond what is expected from anatomic findings, there is significant oral or oropharyngeal dysphagia, or there are other neurological signs and symptoms present. Treatment is driven by symptoms. Medical management options include diet modification with thickened feeds and positioning maneuvers, anti-reflux medications, especially if there is evidence of laryngopharyngeal reflux, and optimization of pulmonary medications. A trial of medical management is warranted in cleft types 1 and 2 without significant symptoms. Surgical intervention is indicated if there is clinical or radiographic evidence of aspiration with feeding, recurrent pneumonias or hospitalization for respiratory distress, or poorly controlled asthma-like symptoms or frequent use of steroids in the setting of an identified deep interarytenoid groove or cleft on DL and no other identified cause for aspiration such as vocal fold immobility, esophageal stricture, etc. Some type 1s, most type 2s, and all types 3 and 4 will require surgical intervention. Surgical options include interarytenoid injection augmentation, endoscopic repair, or open repair. Injection augmentation uses the same fillers discussed in the vocal fold injection lecture and can be done at the same time of the diagnostic DL. These can be a simple, fairly easy procedure that can produce immediate benefit and help determine if more permanent interventions would be beneficial. Duration of benefit depends on the injection material used, but typically lasts about three months. Endoscopic repair is the gold standard for type 1 clefts, most type 2 clefts, and select type 3s. 
Multiple studies have demonstrated a 75 to 100% success rate defined as a decrease or elimination of aspiration symptoms and or a normalized barium swallow. Open repair is required for most T3s and all T4s. There are two approach options, anterior approach with or without sternotomy and a right cervical approach with right phagotomy with or without a right posterior lateral thoracotomy. Types 3 and 4 clefts have higher incidence of tracheobronchiomalacia, and so thoracic surgery may also need to perform a tracheopexy or aortopexy. For airway control, patients may require a tracheostomy or even cardiopulmonary bypass or ECMO. They will recover in the ICU with a secured airway for several days before undergoing a repeat DLB to re-examine the repair site prior to a controlled extubation in the OR or ICU. These patients are also more likely to require a long-term feeding conduit, such as an NG tube or a G-tube for several weeks. Type 4 cleft repairs experience complications 50% of the time, and large type 4 clefts have a mortality rate of 44 to 76% with or without surgery. However, patients with limited comorbidities and clefts that terminate above the carina have a high proportion of success with open repair. Other surgical procedures that may augment endoscopic or open repair include supraglottoplasty, corniculate cartilage pexy, or Nissen fundoplication. So in summary, clefts arise when there is an arrest of the formation of the cricoid ring or of the tracheoesophageal septum during weeks five to seven of gestation. The Benjamin Inglis classification describes four types of clefts. Type one extends to the true vocal folds. Type 2 extends into the cricoid, type 3 goes through the cricoid into the cervical trachea, and type 4 goes beyond the sternal notch into the thoracic trachea. The Sandu-Monnier classification breaks type 3 into A, extending through the cricoid only, and B, extends into the cervical trachea, and then type 4 into A, limited to the thoracic trachea, and B, involves a mainstem bronchus. Workup includes FFL, MBS, or FEES, and a definitive diagnosis requires DL with palpation of the interarytenoid area. Concurrent bronchoscopy is important for identifying the extent of the cleft and for looking for other abnormalities such as tracheobronchiomalacia or a TE fistula. Syndromes associated with laryngeal clefting include Opitz-Frias or Opitz-G-BBB syndrome, Pallister-Hall syndrome, and the Vactorel Association. Opitz also has hypertelorism and hypospadias, and the autosomal dominant form is caused by a mutation of the 22Q11 gene. Pallister Hall also has polydactyly, hypothalamic hamartomas, and a bifid epiglottis. Vactoril is not a syndrome, but is an association of vertebral defects, anal atresia, cardiac defects, TE fistula, renal abnormalities, and limb abnormalities there is no known cause to explain this grouping. Medical management for mild symptoms in type 1 and 2 clefts involves a modified diet, plus or minus anti-reflux therapy, and optimizing pulmonary medications. Perform surgery if you know they're aspirating or their poor pulmonary status and respiratory symptoms make you suspicious that they're aspirating and your workup has confirmed a deep interarytenoid groove or cleft and eliminated other causes of aspiration. Surgical options include injection augmentation of the interarytenoid area, 
endoscopic repair, which is the gold standard for types 1, most type 2s, and some type 3s, and then open repair, which is typically needed for types 3 and 4. Adjunctive procedures include supraglottoplasty or corniculate cartilage pexy to prevent over-tightening of the larynx and Nissen fundoplication for reflux control. All cleft patients should undergo multidisciplinary management involving speech therapy, pulmonology, and gastroenterology, with neurology being brought on board in select cases. And that wraps up our review of laryngeal clefts. For visual aids to these lectures, please check out the ENT Nuggets of Knowledge Instagram page and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to automatically get the newest episodes. Thanks and happy studies.